I was sitting praying a couple of months ago. As I often do, I started with the Lord's Prayer. I like to use each part of the prayer as a heading to structure my time. Uh, when I got stuck on the first line, Father in heaven, Father in heaven, because I started thinking, yes, but I don't want you in heaven. Lord, what are you doing up there? We need you here right now, sorting out this mess on earth. We need you, Father, to sort out the virus, sort out law-breaking, sort out injustice, sort out poverty, sort out the economy. Father in heaven, I began to cry out, we need you here on earth and for your kingdom to come right here, right now, more than ever. Father, won't you come? I don't know if you've had similar conversations with God at this time, but we really do need heaven's solution right now. But as I started to wrestle with these thoughts, it suddenly came to me that our Father is not just the God of heaven, he's also the God of the earth, and in particular, he is the God of the nations. He is the God of the nations. And this is what I want us to see today, that our Father, the God of heaven and earth, is also the God of the nations, which means we can trust him with all that's going on in the world today. And that when we come to pray, we know that we're praying to the one who has the influence over all the nations and generations to come. We have the ear of the king. He is the God of the nations. He's in charge of them. He invented them. He, he even invented them as a way, to, as a way to govern and order mankind with laws and boundaries to provide security and structure. And through them, the ability for all of us to fulfill God's original creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, he said in Genesis. As Paul tells the Athenians on Mars Hill in the book of Acts, he says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. See, he even sets their times and boundaries. And as we look back over the history of the world, we can see that God somehow has led each nation into the territory it was intended for them to occupy for a particular time because the earth is the Lord's and he can divide it up just as he wills. That's what it says in the Psalms. God is actually in charge. He is over all kings and rulers. He is the Lord over all powers, realms, and principalities. He is the king of all kings who raises up leaders and sets them in their places. He also removes them and he replaces them. He raises nations and empires and for a time they flourish and their fame fills the earth and then he shuts them down again and their time is over. He is the God of all the nations. And in this mammoth run through Ezra and Nehemiah that we're doing at the moment, we get to see the behind the scenes picture of these things running through the story of the exile and the release of a nation through the power of the Babylonian Empire at the instigation of none other than God himself, which shows us just how much he really is in charge. And this should give us hope 
hope in our own times and circumstances. Even today, I want you to understand that we're not merely left to our own devices. God is very much involved. He's still at work in the affairs of man. We're not ultimately at the mercy of viruses, economies, governments or oppressors around the world. God has a plan for the nations, for the whole world until the end comes, which he will then bring all things together in Christ. And so what I want to do is show you how God is the God of the nations through the reign of three despotic pagan kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, who according to God's plan put the nation of Judah into exile, and then they were instrumental in the reformation of the nation of Israel without any idea of what they were doing. And this is how it all starts. God tells one of his prophets, Habakkuk, that he's going to send Judah into exile. And also how he's going to do it. It's in the first chapter of his book where God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. Because I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who will sweep across the earth. He will, they will seize dwellings that are not their own. That's in the first chapter of Habakkuk. Now we don't know exactly how many years these words were spoken before the exile, possibly only 25 years, but God is describing to the prophet the kingdom which would be ruled by the second king of Babylon, uh, whose influence would grow rapidly, King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most powerful and long-reigning monarchs of the Babylonian Empire, which through successive campaigns he formed. He, he is described by Jeremiah as the destroyer of nations, on the one hand, but God also calls him my servant Nebuchadnezzar, on the other. Uh, unbelievably, God raises up a pagan empire through Nebuchadnezzar to discipline the nation of Judah for their idolatry and sin, even though they are the people of God. And it was such a shock to Habakkuk at the time. He said, surely not God, not the Babylonians. That's how the book goes on. But the God of the nations has certain standards for the nations. And so there is a day of reckoning for every nation on the earth, even a nation of God's chosen people, as we see here with Judah. And there are other examples, aren't there, of of this kind of reckoning, such as in Genesis, when God was ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so grievous. That's what it says in Genesis 18. Although in response to Lot's prayers, God puts off their destruction for a time, uh, if there could be found even ten righteous people there, showing the incredible importance of prayer for the future of our nations. You know, prayer is such a key to the government of nations. Don't be in any doubt that the prayers of righteous people have great effect on God's attention to the nations. I'm going to keep saying this, you know. We need to pray for our nation at this time. 
We need to pray for the nations of the world because we have great power to influence the course of history through our prayers. Do you believe that? At the same time, nations who behave righteously, whether they mean to or not, gain favor from God. As King Solomon tells us in his Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. I mean, does it make you wonder about some of our nations today? The prominence they've had over the years or the prominence that we have lost. I've wondered many times about our own nation and the favor of God that we've known in the past that just doesn't seem to be there in the same way now. Father, forgive us. You know, bring this nation and and its leaders back to you, Father. Bring us back to you. The Babylonian Empire, of course, had great favor for many years expanding across huge areas of modern-day Turkey, Iraq, and Egypt, and all around that region. Uh, Babylon, Babylon itself was the biggest city in the world for a long time, and it had incredible wealth and trading routes that stretched across the world. But then after about 300 years, it all came to an end. But get this, it started with these interactions with the people of God. This time it's Jeremiah who gives us God's backstory when he tells us how the Babylonian Empire will be brought to an end following the return of the Jews to Palestine. He says, God says to Jeremiah, I will punish, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord. And I will make it desolate forever. I will bring on that land all the things I've spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. That's Jeremiah 25. And Habakkuk actually in chapter 2 has a very similar prophecy. And this leads us to the second king, Cyrus, who unwittingly has just started the clock on this prophecy as he begins to return the Jewish people to their Palestinian home. Just read with me in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It intros the book like this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Wow. And he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you may... May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the Lord God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. King Cyrus, I mean... How extraordinary is this Cyrus, a a pagan king, 
is moved by God to release the nation of Judah from exile, along with these fantastic claims he makes about himself. He says, the God of heaven, in verse 2, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And and he, he goes on to say, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. I mean, those are pretty extraordinary claims, aren't they? I mean, how did he know this? Where did he get this information from? I mean, there's some pretty big things that he's saying there. I mean, some people wondered if he'd read some of, been read some of the Old Testament, or perhaps the power had just gone to his head. Only God knows. Although it's true to say that astoundingly, Cyrus is mentioned at least 23 times in the Old Testament. Before he's even a twinkle in his father's eye, the prophet Isaiah names him and describes him as the Lord's shepherd, the Lord's anointed, appointed to facilitate the divine plan. It's just an amazing example of the fulfillment of prophecy as Isaiah, writing 150 years before Cyrus exists, tells how God would lead this king to subdue nations and open doors. In other words, release Judah from exile. He would make rough places smooth. In other words, accommodate the return to Jerusalem. And that ultimately, he would be responsible for a chain of events that would lead to the rebuilding of the city and the temple. Amazing. It's amazing that the king would do all these things even though he didn't know God. In other words, although he was a pagan man in every sense of the word, as an unconscious tool in the hands of God, he would still contribute mightily to the re-establishing of the Jewish nation of Israel and in so doing indirectly to the coming of God's greater anointed Jesus himself. Amazing. God uses a pagan king in that way. And so God moves his heart first and then he moves the heart of the people. That's what it says in Ezra 5, five. And the families begin their journey back, but not before God moves Cyrus's heart again to give them back all the gold and temple articles that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from them. That's in verse 7. They go back rich. They go back with incredible wealth. You see, God not only owns the nations, he owns the wealth of the nations. It all belongs to him. You know, he alone is able to resource people and nations with wealth and move their hearts with generosity to benefit those that have nothing. We need him to do that again today, don't we? He still does that today. He moves the heart of nations to reach out to those that are in poverty, to those that are in distress, to those that are in crisis. God does that. God is the God of the nations and all that is in them. But not even God's people fully realize the full extent of the plan. And God has to move another pagan king into place to finish the job. Actually, he has to move his heart twice, at least. King Artaxerxes, I'm just going to call him Artie, because I just can't say that name properly. I've practiced it, but I still can't say it properly. King Artie. Uh, we meet him in chapter 7, and, and we're told that uh, Ezra the teacher finds favor with King Artie. 
who gives him everything he asks for concerning Jerusalem. Imagine that. He gives him everything he asks for concerning Jerusalem. He sends Ezra by royal decree with another group of people who are essentially scholars and academics back to Jerusalem with the task of rebuilding the temple, teaching the people the law of God. And so Ezra writes this in response. He says, praise be. This is in chapter 7, verse 27. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. And yet again, we can see God's hand in this. He put it into the king's heart to do the right thing and bring honor to the house of God. I mean, doesn't that just do something to you to know this? That God puts it into the heart of a pagan king to bless the people of God. I think that's a wonderful thing, to honor the people of God, to honor the church and their meeting together. God puts it into his heart. But it's not just about the temple and their religious life. God is also concerned about the city which is all about the forming of trade. He's concerned about the economy and ultimately their independence as a nation. And we see this in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, where God again moves the heart of King Arti for the rebuilding of the city with resources released from the king's own treasury so that the people can start their own economy. (laughs) And, and he sent, and he administers it. He sends, he sends somebody to administer this, one of his own trusted civil servants, the godly man Nehemiah, who God just happened to have placed right next to the king to speak into his ear and so move his heart. I mean, have you ever thought of your job like that? Have you ever thought about how God positions people at just the right time and just the right place? Because the God of the nations is working out his plan for his glory and the redemption of everything with you being there. I mean, how about you thinking about your job like that? When you go to work on Monday, God has put me here. I have a purpose from God in the redemption of everything. And that's why I'm here for such a time as this, as Esther says. So there we go, three different kings leading this vast pagan empire whom God influenced to see his purposes fulfilled. And staggeringly for us, none of these kings actually knew God. None of them worshipped him. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar was driven mad, if you remember, thinking that he was God. And Cyrus worshipped pagan gods, as did King Arti. And yet they all somehow ended up doing the will of God. As he moved on their hearts, his plan was worked out for the whole world, ultimately seen in Jesus. So what does all this mean for us? Well, before anything else, the fact that God is the God of the nations means that we can trust him with everything that's happening in the world today. We actually can trust him. 
God is ultimately in charge. And he has a plan to bring everything together, all nations and people from every tribe and tongue into this new great nation that Paul calls, sorry, Peter calls the holy nation, speaking of the church, a kingdom of priests to God to reign on the earth. And until this happens, we must pray for our nation and the nations of the world, confident, even as we do, that we are influencing nations, economies, and world affairs. You know, when you listen to the news, when you read it online, ask him to act for his kingdom to come, because we really do have the ear of the king. But know this, one day there will be a great reckoning for the nations. Jesus tells us how the nations of the world will be gathered before him. Matthew 25, it says that he will separate the people one from another, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And what sets apart the sheep from the goats is how these nations have treated the people whom they were raised to serve. And so when we pray for the leaders of the world... Pray that their hearts will be moved for righteousness. Pray that their hearts are not hardened. Pray that they will deal wisely with their people and remember the poor. Because honestly, if he can do it with Nebuchadnezzar, he can do it with Putin. He can do it with Trump. He can do it with Xi Jinping. He can even do it with Boris. Uh, And, you know, I just felt challenged, provoked as I was writing this. I'm going to send out a list of all the world leaders and all the nations of the world so that you can pray through them. Let's start to pray for these people and let's start to pray for these nations. Jesus, of course, oh, sorry, I was going to say one of the key reasons for this is because God is the God of the nations, they serve at his pleasure. You know that, don't you? You know, he can remove a leader if he wants to at any time. And, and because it's his blood, the blood of his son, that's paid the price for all peoples everywhere to be saved. And that's why we're commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations. I don't even know what that means, to make disciples of a nation. But that's what we're called to do. And of course, Jesus has asked the Father for all the nations of the world as his inheritance which is also our inheritance. And we can ask him for this in our time. Father, give us the nations of the world for your glory. And this thinking, of course, about the inheritance of the nation comes from Psalm 2. And I just want to finish by reading that psalm as a kind of a declaration over our nation, a declaration over the nations of the world. I don't know, perhaps you you can stand with me and do it with me, Uh, As we do this, Psalm 2 goes like this. Are you ready? Let's declare this over the nations. And we say this, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord's anointed saying, let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. Well, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. 
The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, on the holy mountain. And so I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son and today I've become your father. So ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, and you will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, we declare this, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment blessed are all who take refuge in him amen we declare this we declare this we declare this lord you own the nations you own the hearts of the nations we declare it father that you are the god of the nations that you are the king of all kings in jesus name Amen. So why not, as we come to a close, why not you just take a moment to just pray right where you are in your home uh, and with one another. Just take a moment to pray. I'm just going to give you 30 seconds. I'm going to stop speaking for 30 seconds. Why don't you just pray for your nation, pray for the nations for a moment. Tell the Father what you want him to do. He's in charge. Be bold. Be courageous. Speak. Speak to, speak to him what's in your heart. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Father, I just release a spirit of intercession right now over the church, over everyone who's watching here online. Father, everybody who's in this room, Father, we just release a spirit of intercession, the spirit of groaning. Father, we cry out to you, Father, will you move in our day? Will you move in the hearts of our leaders? Will you move in our nations? Father, we pray for a wide, worldwide move of God. You know, we don't often see worldwide things happening, but we're seeing quite a lot of them at the moment, and the virus is just one of those. Father, we want to ask you for a worldwide outpouring of the Spirit. Will you touch every nation, every king, every president, every prime minister, everyone who's in authority, everyone who's in leadership? And Father, we just pray, let righteousness prevail. Let mercy triumph over judgment, we pray. Father, let it flow like a never-ending stream for your glory. And let your glory be told to all the nations, Father. And the hope of salvation preached to every nation, to every part of every nation, to every ethnic group, we pray, for your glory and for your name. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.